Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello. Thanks for pressing play on Episode 7 of LSQ. It's me, Jenny LSQ. Uh, by the way, LSQ is just the phonetic approximation of my last name. Nothing uh, too complicated going on there. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation with an artist that is a true multi-talent. A singer-songwriter, producer, band leader, festival organizer, philanthropist, and oh yeah, let's not forget a three-time Grammy winner as well. I'm talking about Jack Antonoff, folks, from Bleachers and Fun and before that Steel Train. Jack and I are old pals, and in fact, I met him uh, when he was the singer and guitarist in Steel Train starting in the early aughts. And Jack and I hit it off pretty much immediately. I mean, he's got an enthusiasm and a wit and a candor um, and a passion for music that I really admire. And it's been inspiring to see his career evolve and grow in recent years when he's been working as a producer with artists including Taylor Swift and Lord and St. Vincent. But really, it's his passion for making authentic music and connecting with the real emotion of a song um, that I think is one of the interesting things that Jack talks about in this interview. Also, following the interview with Jack, you'll hear an excerpt from a conversation I had with Rage Against the Machine's Zach De La Roca back in the year 2000. And actually, this uh, interview with Jack starts kind of in mid-thought because we began talking before I could get the tape recorder set up. But what you're missing here is that uh, we began by talking about working-class musicians and how hard it can be to just to just do that, to just do music as a good, honest vocation. Anyway, let's uh, let's listen. There's so many ways to do it. There's so many labels and agents and writers and publishers. Like you could, anyone could get into music. I, cause just when I was growing up, I just felt very specifically separate from even wanting to play music. Just the the concept of the music industry, like it didn't appear on high school like guidance counselor lists. Yeah. Well, it was like the idea would be that you would need to have a plan B. For sure, you would have expected you have to have a plan B. Yeah, because it's like risky. Quote unquote. Right. Which isn't really, it's not that different than any industry. Yeah, I mean, I guess it really does, just like everything, it just depends on where you're coming from and the idea of how your parents treated the idea, you know, treated the aspiration of doing art or music as as a thing. You know, I, I just did an interview the other day with. Uh, you know that band Porches? Yeah. Yeah, with Aaron from Porches. And he grew up with, like, a dad who was a professional musician, but, like, just a kind of 
the blue collar equivalent of that. So, you know, he made music, but he didn't achieve any real success with it. And, you know, I think if you grow up with that, then you're like, oh, you, it's, there's no pressure to have the music thing work out. You're just like, oh, some people just do this. Um, well, it's a horrible thing that happens in art because art can come with fame. So the the bar is set in a weird place where there's a different there's a different uh, concept of what is failure and what is success. So if you're a doctor and you have a very small practice, everyone's like, "Great, you're a doctor." If you're a woodworker and you work on, in a small shop, that's what you do. You make keys, you work at the post office, whatever it is. If you're a doctor and you have a massive successful practice, you don't become famous. Right. You're still just a doctor. So in art, this weird thing happens where because there's the, you know, everyone's like, well, you know, call me when you win a Grammy kind of vibe, like, right? So there's, because there's the option to become known by people, if you're not, some people see that as not having success or at its most offensive, we'll call it an aspiring artist, which is extremely <laughs> absurd. But no one's, you know, if I say to you like, oh, I'm a, uh, you know, I, I work on cars and I got a shop. People are like, great, you have a career and, and you right unless yourself. you really like fuck up your entire business somehow yeah you're like fine. doing okay and there's a, a only a like what's the most successful you're going to be is when you reach the point where you can like open a second one of whatever you have yeah, and there's, hire there's no people. question no one's like call me when you uh, have 30,000 billboards they'll be like great but it's like if, if I was like I'm a musician I, I play four nights a week and that's what I do they might be like hang in there you know, yeah. like let me know when you, you know, when you when you play Madison Square Garden, Carnegie Hall, and, it, and it's there's not, and I, I believe it. That's probably the case in all forms of art, um, where there there's a deep lack of respect for the working class of art. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's and there's such a huge gulf in between, you know, what 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 would be the funny example, Puff Daddy. Yeah. <laughs> and porches, you know what I mean? Like the gulf in between Puff Daddy and porches, like, you know, I think about like if I were to try and explain who an artist is to my mom, who, you know, is her awareness of even pop music is just anecdotal. It's not like she's up on much of any of it, but yeah. she's heard the name she's heard. And I think like how hard would it be to explain to my mom who this is? That's when I know how niche that thing is, you know? But totally. there are so few things that she would know what it is immediately. And, you know, actually, as a you know good kind of starting point for this conversation, it's interesting. Obviously, I've known you for a long time now, but... Over a decade. Over a decade. But you're at a place now where you're, like, one of the rare people who exists in that, you know, that place where it's, like, you've won Grammys and shit, and you're, like, a guy who artists are more and more starting to look to to work with, but you're not a household name. You know, it's, like... I'm sure these are some some of the things you've achieved in the past five years have been like things you probably thought were way out of the grasp of like well, a punk that, rock kid from New Jersey. I didn't Jersey. think about them, right? And and to tie into our conversation about working class art, like it didn't, it it wasn't, it wasn't my goal. Like my, you know, when when you know back in those days, you know, the days I'm talking about, it was like. The, the the specific goal the goal of any artist who really cares about what they're doing is to be able to have the luxury to not stop and so all I thought about I'm sure in in your path in art and mine and all the people you know the only goal was can I sell out Bowery Ballroom 
and venues around that size, not because it would make me feel important or famous, but because that would mean I could have an apartment, potentially a family, and eat and 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 have like a slice of whatever the American dream is that my friend who went to college got. Right. So that was that was it. It was it was it was only and and I don't mean to and I didn't like grow up in a terrible neighborhood. Right, but, but meaning if you reach that level, then you would have proved it was sustainable as a career. Survival. Right. You know, like that. Everyone I know um, got into this with the one with two feelings. I love doing this. Holy shit! How can I keep doing this? Right. And that's the burden of of uh, loving something, and is you don't want to stop. No, nobody, nobody on earth. Maybe for a couple months they do it, but I've never met a person who tours and writes records and does this work and comes home at the end of the day and thinks like, eh. Right. I mean, maybe maybe if they do it for two months, but people who are really in it for years and years. Right. It's too complicated. Why would you do it if you didn't love it? Right. Even the parts that you hate are sort of things that you love. Why? There'd be no reason to do it. And so you... what, when did you know that you loved it? I mean, was it... As for, first tours can be hellacious or whatever, but I mean, as a teenager, like touring with your first band, did you love doing all of the things associated with playing your music like did you love it all right away um well i felt i i well i think there's a huge difference between the lifestyle and music and you and you fall in love with them at different times you know how many people love touring and aren't great at music how many people are the greatest musicians and hate being on the road they're totally separate things that and i and people who are lucky love both i i'm lucky to love both but i fell in love with music you know when my parents gave me the Beatles that was it there was nothing else I never felt that from anything still haven't I, I like the way you say when your parents gave you the Beatles because I mean I'm, I'm sure they didn't regard it as that <laughs> so they were just that's just what they listened to no they, to they gave it to me it's not your your parents or your friends gift you things like for right. example like I've never been given Sinatra one day I'll get it but, right. it, but like I don't have it yet. Oh, I know. Man, if we had more time, I, I, I know it's great. <laughs> I would give you some Sinatra. Totally, right I know now. it's great, and I know my life <laughs> would benefit from it. But like, um, you know, my girlfriend when I was in high school gave me Tom Waits. Right. And if it wasn't for her and that introduction, which the only way I got that introduction was because we were in love and we listened to it, and so the music was potent to me. If I heard it on the radio or at a party, so my parents gave me the Beatles, um, and they did it properly. You know, they didn't blast I want to hold your hand over and over in the car. Like, they, I, I really got it at a young age. That's when I fell in love with music. But when I was 15 and I did my first tour, right away I was like, I love doing this. And it wasn't even really about music when I started touring. It was about, I was in a punk band and it was like a lot of, it was just like noise at that time. I wasn't super into songwriting structure or sounds. Right. I just loved the ability to start over every day and not live with the weight of your life. Right, and I think people who love tour. I mean, at that time, my sister was sick with cancer. One thing I've noticed about a lot of people who love tour is that they, we all, wanted to get away from something, mm. and touring is a great way to do it. Right, but then circumstances of life change, and uh, I do think there has to be something innate. Um, artists who tour throughout all these different transitions in their life and lifestyle. Um, changes where it's like you know it's I get that it's hard the touring thing but it seems like such a huge part of sustaining 
excitement as an artist is getting out there and being in front of the audience, even if, like, the nitty-gritty of, like, getting in the van or on the bus or whatever is, like, a bummer to aspects of one's life outside of that. You know, it's like you've got to... Oh, it's vital. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the only... Research is a grossly clinical word for it, but it's the only information or research that matters to your art. So who cares what a critic says? Right. Who cares what the radio says? Who cares what your label says? Blah, blah, blah. We all know that that's like all those cliches and they don't matter. But when you put people in a room, you know, you don't tour so people can come look at you. You tour so you can have a communal experience. And you you can't fake that and it matters. If something works in the venue, that matters. And that's worth noting and figuring out how to create more and more. If something doesn't work, then you can't sit there and just be like, fuck you, you guys don't get me. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's coming from a punk rock background. It's like you must le- have learned that lesson pretty early of of like you know the idea that a show is a communal experience and that you want to feel the audience feeling it. You know, if you have ever played in like a punk band, you you know that that's a goal even before yeah. you have any songs that you're that excited about. You know, that that's that's before music. At least when I grew up in that music, before the song was the experience and the community. That was first. And so, had you been going to shows as a kid before you started a band? What were the the experiences that made you want to go on tour in the first place? Just from a, forget about escaping your life, were there slightly older kids who had bands that were doing just a little something that excited you? Yeah, it was the New Jersey scene. Right. Which you remember. Yeah. Um, Which was... It's very easy to uh, to romanticize the community and music you were into when you were 15, but in hindsight, that music and that scene and what was going on in New Jersey and then a few years later in New York at Mercury Lounge and stuff like that, like, that wasn't because I was young. That history has proven that was... Yeah. That was a moment. I was lucky enough to exist yeah. in it. Yeah. But when I started going to shows in Jersey at fire, at fire halls, and just like you said, I had friends that were starting to play in Connecticut and Philly, and one day someone made it all the way to Texas, and then... And you start to understand the culture, so like, at the drive-in would come through, and they'd sleep at your house. You know, Jimmy World would come through, and... Because at that time... So wait, did at the drive-in come through and sleep at your house? I believe so. Right. Jimmy World did. <laughs> Lagwagon slept in my house. Right. Um... I think that's how I remember for my friends Eric's. I was I was I slept at a house with at the drive-in. I can't remember yeah. if it was mine or my friends, but that's what it was. Uh, your parents were chill with like bands crashing. Yeah, yeah. I, I had one of those houses that you can count on, where it was like um, my parents had. A I mean, your parents were obviously hilarious, uh, like easy to be around. Yeah, they deserve like, their own episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 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 being around the culture, you, you see, you you love the music and you love the scene, you love the feeling of it and then you also see these people that are coming through on tours and they're heroes right they're like it's almost like back then touring bands the way we treated them it was like we were like on the sidelines of the new york marathon like handing them water and patting them on the back it was like we were like taking them in and making sure they because because we believed what they did was very important yeah and everything was booked there were you know personally and there was in our town it was a guy named ricky supporta and heath miller they did all the shows. That right. was it. Few clubs, few fire halls. But I mean, I'm guessing that little teenage Jack, you know, was drawn to also just the the outcast kind of aspect of the punk rock thing. Oh, deeply. The, relating to the outsider, 
point of view of it. Well, I felt burned by mainstream music mm. because I gr- in the early 90s, I loved it. And I loved Smashing Pumpkins and I loved Nirvana and Green Day and Weezer and Space Hog and Sponge and right. all of it. I loved right. it. I loved you it. Were, but you were like six years old or something. I was like, right? like yeah. 10, 11. 10, right. like, you know, so I, was, I loved it so much. I loved the culture. I started going to shows. The Chili Peppers were making great albums then. Right. Fucking U2 was making great albums then. Right, yeah. Um, it was just an amazing moment. You look at Woodstock 94, look at that bill. Right. The Beastie Boys were putting out incredible records. Hip-hop was coming up, and I was starting to understand it. And then around 96 or 7. Yeah. Um, in time for Woodstock 99. <laughs> in which the fans chose to oh, literally burn it down. I was there. By the way, no greater <laughs> metaphor, literal... Then for how generations can shift in four years, yeah. then five years, then in 94, <laughs> you had fucking from Melissa Etheridge to the Chili Peppers to Crosby, Sills, Nash coming back, cut to five years <laughs> later, the fans burned down their own festival to the soundtrack of Limp Biscuit. <laughs> yeah, that was my first assignment for, for Rolling Stone was Woodstock 99. Were you safe? And I was like, it was literal trial by fire. I was, yeah, but it was, it was... You know, that was the last day of it, and, like, by the time you got to day three, it was like, whoa, this is hell on earth, this place. So the fact that it, you know what I mean? Like, it all led up to, it was all leading up to that. It was such like a It wasn't bleak, a great vibe from the it beginning. It was such a bleak, bleak vibe from, from the beginning. Well, the, the music was... Music was very good, and also we just didn't have, like, now we figured out how to do the festival thing. Yeah, because I remember people were, like... Not getting food and water. The water was too expensive. It was like the the site where they had it was like just depressing and concrete. And we got there, like Rolling Stone had a whole team of like a dozen people doing different things. And we got there the Thursday night and went to the grounds to have a look. And it already was just littered with pizza boxes. And it was already just like, oh, this is going to, this is where we're going to be for the next three days. And yeah. And then, of course, there are all these sexual assaults. Word started spreading about that. You know, so Woodstock 99. For the kids, look it up on the Wikipedia. Yeah. It was terrible. It was hell. <laughs> I, I just I just think it's so funny. But it was, it was so indicative of that moment, which I'm talking about, which I felt so burned by, and it led me to underground music. Because I was like, I grew up. Here's my childhood. I get the Beatles from my parents. I'm old enough to turn on the radio, and I hear fucking Smashing Pumpkins coming through the radio. And okay. I hear Nirvana. And I hear fucking Melissa Etheridge and right. Snoop Dogg. Well, and you and still Dre. have like, like Michael Jackson. Michael like, Jackson, shit, yeah, like, yeah, like like it was just Prince, and, you know, Prince was on the. Yeah, it was it was a massive Tom Petty and t- blessed it, blessed Tina Dance with Mary Mary Jane and, was yeah, a, those are, was a hit song. Yeah, that wasn't a like a cool later Petty track. That was a hit song. Right, that was on Z one hundred, like straight up. Yeah. So when the late 90s came and you had a lot of, you know, synthetic and bad pop music and weird bro butt rock, I was just like, fuck this. And my friends and I were too. So the kids that I would go to the arena to watch Smashing Pumpkins in, we had to go somewhere. And it wasn't going to be to a 98 Degrees concert. Right, right. And it wasn't going to be to a Limp Biscuit or Taproot concert. Right. So, <laughs> seriously, it's like, where the fuck do you go? <laughs> and so we... And I, I, like, remember, like, just... I remember discovering No Effects. Yeah. And then I remember discovering Fat Records, and I remember discovering the cl- classics of that, you know, Minor Threat and Bad Brains, and I just got into all the stuff, and then I realized that there were these shows happening. I had, you know, one friend. It's like fucking Narnia out there yeah. to find that scene. It was... Remember Pete Valenzano? 
I don't. He was in Revolution Summer. Okay. Remember the Heckle Garage? Do you remember that? Like the guys in Heckle, they used to do, put on shows in a garage. Vaguely, I mean, I had more you know, like coming from the Long Island side, which was a whole other, which beast. was and you know and a little and starting a little bit earlier, um, you know when it was like Garden Variety and you know Mind Over Matter and all that kind of. I got in right after, so the, the kids that were older than me would talk about like I got in right when Lifetime was breaking up. Right. So it was the dawn of maybe like second wave New Jersey. I don't know if that's a oh, yeah. phrase. Yeah. But uh, you know, there were there were the kids who actually went to Grill Biscuit shows and right. remembered it in a different way, but you you had to get invited. It was it was it was what so many like posh bars have tried to create. Like you yeah. couldn't just show up, you couldn't find out about it. There was no internet, there wasn't really cell phones, so it's like it was literally flyers you would just know. We used to literally meet up at this Applebee's and then someone would know about a show. Right. And we all go to the show. Yeah. Yeah. It was such a beautiful, beautiful thing that, and I mean this in no crotchety way, but it just does not exist. And I'm so uh, thankful that I got to see a second of it. And I, it's, and, I, and I wasn't like there for all of it. I wasn't like a pioneer. I just got to be there for a second. Yeah. And it informed how, why I, I play and how I love music. It must be interesting working with artists who are younger than you and who are internet native you know, someone like Lord, for instance, where you think about how they've come to the weird combination of music that they like. I mean, this is one of the things that I love about kids who are internet natives is that they have much more of a mishmash of things that they like and are much more likely to have heard a little bit of all sorts of different things where, like, you know, when I was developing my taste in music it was based on more anecdotal things and it's based more on how much you cherish the person who gave you the thing too whereas now there's it's much less often that there's a person attached to the introduction to to the music or something and i wonder if when you're working with an artist on on their song who comes from that different method of kind of music taste building whether you've noticed anything, any sort of different things about the way that they're processing influences or if you have to kind of, or find that you modify your approach to try and get in the headspace of like a internet native, you know? Um, not really. Yeah. But, I, but, but it's a huge difference. The, the biggest thing, my biggest takeaway from it is I think younger kids are less cynical about music. When, when I was coming up, and I don't know if you remember this, there was a lot of like, Fuck you! That sucks. Yeah, you have to listen to this. Oh, you listen to that? That's disgusting. You have to. Listen. It was so hyper. I'm holding it down for that point of view a little bit. Sometimes still. I do too. It was so hyper curated, <laughs> and it was so like hyper. Like you're either part of the the good fiber, or you, it's like you're with the terrorists, or, or you're with us. <laughs> it, it's literally that. I was like, you listen to that, get the fuck out of here. You make me sick. There was none of this like ironic. No one ironically liked Britney. In the punk scene, it wasn't a thing. Yeah, no one ironically wore a Britney shirt and like would talk about like how like she actually had some really sick production on Toxic. That wasn't a thing. It was just us and them. Um, and on one hand, there was a lot of cynicism there, which I I don't love. But on the other hand, it was like this crazy obsession with quality. Um, and so I love that part of it. But when I'm working, um, some younger people I know they. They just, they're it's they're a little more free, right? They like yeah. it or they don't like it, and it's not because they had some OG of the scene beating it into their head that anyone who listens to this <laughs> band 
yeah. is a fucking joke. <laughs> but that, so I, but I have some of that in me. Yeah, exactly. No, I know. I know that about you, and that's why I think it's interesting it's damage, that man. you've adapted <laughs> your sensibility to actual pop music. I mean, but I always loved. Was pop there music. a point though in when, when you were younger where you had to come to a reckoning about like? No, I don't hate some of the stuff I'm supposed to hate, or like. Sort well, it was weird. Like Morrissey was always important. Morrissey was like this one, for for like all the punk kids. Morrissey was always an exception, and Morrissey and the Smiths they were they were such beautiful pop songs. Right. They were so beautifully produced. There was there was such there was the hooks were outstanding. That was that was I'm sure you had that experience too. It was the one freebie. Well, yeah, I guess I never even thought, I didn't think of, Mar- you know, Morrissey still felt like it was, it was... Well, it's counterculture. Yeah, it was like our thing. But you if know? you go, but it, but it also, but he was selling at arenas. Yeah. When, when it was our, it, Morrissey was weird because I just remember getting a lot of my need for melody and out with, with my, with the ability to be like, well, you can always listen to Morrissey. Right. Um, right. And you know, and then also, so it's, it was a weird blend. It was like you go from the '90s, super exciting, super melodic. A lot of that music that was so outstanding, and 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 then also the music that entered me before I was conscious. So when I was a baby, I guess Depeche Mode was on the radio. Mm. I guess Yaz was on the radio. I guess Michael was on the radio. I guess Janet Jackson was on the radio. Right. I guess Paul Abdul and Prince and Bowie was putting out records that were still hits. Right. You know, because you got you got to consider the music that's in the ether. Yeah, you know, so it's, I don't think my mom was coming home and just blasting Janet, but if I was at the supermarket in a stroller, that's what's entering my consciousness. Right, if you're in the car and yeah, all of that stuff. Which for is sure. why this is a greater point, but which is why I, I have a very deep belief in keeping quality in the mainstream and working towards that because it enters people whether you think it's it's in the cab, it's in the airport, it's in the Uber, it's it's just there. Yeah. Um, so there's that, and then there's Beatles and '90s, all the great melodic stuff. And then when I got into punk, I um, learned so much from the scene, the morality of it, how people conducted themselves. And then around you know 2002, three, I just started to like want to put it all together, right? Just, you know, just be like, this is how I make records. And I don't give a fuck where my records end up or how. Or how anyone views them, or if, if this person's a pop star, or this is mainstream, or this is underground, or whatever it is, it's like I make it in this room we're sitting in. That to me is a real link to what I learned growing up in the Jersey scene. Right. Um, so it's just, it's just that the process is the process is sort of unchanged at the end of the day. It's just well, I have this weird blend, which I think some people from my specific generation do, and I mean specific, like a two-year point of like I love. I'm so connected from early 90s. I am so aware of what can happen when great music is pumping through the airwaves in the mainstream. Right. And I will die trying to be a part of that because I saw it and it was amazing. And on the other side, I lived in the most underground, like, elitist scenes of rules and ethics ever. And there's so much good in both of that on on the one side of like the mainstream self like you don't want to get lost in that and on the other side you don't want to get lost in that and then I just I, 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 I work really hard to just put the two together right it's quite, hard quite, to see, quite literally it's in the moment it's hard to see what what the timeless classic stuff is you know I mean even you could ask anyone who didn't think who didn't like 
Mary Jane's Last Dance when it came out and thought that Petty's older stuff was better. Yeah. To it, you know, it doesn't. You know, I think we've all had that happen with artists we lo- have loved for a minute, and then their newer thing, and you're like, they're not as good as they used to be. And that's true of the way people regard music in general is that whatever is happening right now, you just can't tell yet if it's even if you even at the best case scenario, you're like, I think this song's really fun. I think maybe this song is really great, but it would seem insane to you don't you just don't have the time yet to assess it. It's always easier to look back and be like, that's when great when things on the radio were great but it's it, it's weird because I, 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 I have this conversation in my head where it's like was it because it was then or was it real and well, I and, and I think like in the case of the early 90s like it wasn't because it was quote unquote then it was real because those records really hold up right whereas like but what about records from today I mean don't you think that the best records from 2017 will hold up just as well as the best records from 1997 or personally I do because Oh, I, I think or? the best records always hold up, and you know, for me in two thousand six, that was a Mountain Goats record. Right. But I, I guess what interests me is what happens when the best records cross that line, which I personally believe, and I could be wrong. Only time will tell. But I believe we're living in one of those moments again, where it's like, you know, using the Grammys as an example because that represents just like utter mainstream, right? Grammys yeah. equals mainstream. Yeah. Um, if you look at the stuff, for the most part, that they're looking at, I'm thinking like, well, you know, I agree that Kendrick is is built to last. Right. I'm biased, but I think that way about Lord. I agree that I love that Jay Z album. I fucking love SZA. I would be shocked if 20 years from now I wasn't telling my kids about SZA. Right. So I'm looking at all these things and I'm saying to myself, maybe we're in that moment again, or maybe we're Look, I don't know if we're, it may be big to say we're in that moment again, but I just think it's worth celebrating when we have that, when when people who have been around for a minute and experienced a lot of music and have what I believe is taste can say, fuck, that thing I heard, that, that thing that the whole world is, you know, the number one listened to album or yeah. whatever it is, is an album I love. Yeah. Because a lot of times it isn't. Yeah, I mean, and I think definitely that this is a thing that the the internet generation has brought to the world is you know more diversity of taste and it's more possible for Arcade Fire to win an album of the year Grammy than a band like that would have been you know of 20 years ago would have been likely to you know definitely less cut up into this is this this is that exactly which is yeah it's the people of this generation they're more like agnostic about genre in a way that's that's you know, just good for music. Ultimately, I think you know, I it's it's interesting though because I know that one of your kind of uh, strategies or approaches as a producer has nothing to do with that, or nothing to do with like the the production side of thing, but more just the kind of like emotional connection with the artist or f- having the artist kind of find the true emotion in the songs that they're working on. Um, and well, you, you can't go wrong if you can't go wrong if you're saying something that you feel like you have to say. It might not be your biggest selling record, or it might not, but you, you just can't go wrong because at the end of the day, that which I think can be missed. The number one goal of this work is to share something in a way that no one else could share it. So yeah. why is it that when you know John Lennon said, "My love will turn you on." 
which if I if I came in through and I said Jenny I, I wrote the most brilliant lyric you, I can't wait to tell you and you're like what is it and I said my love will turn you on you'd be like great <laughs> like yeah. okay so it's you know it can't all be boiled down to like the perfect lyric the perfect melody the perfect production it's just a specific artist saying something that is so what they need to say in that moment right um, and so that's you know, because everything else you figure out, you know, like, especially with all the new tools, which I love, you know, you, you figure it out, you change the tempo, you change the key, you go to the horn that you had nine months ago, you redo it on a synth, and you have a horn player do it. It's just, it's like, you fuck it. that's the fun part. That's that's the part that's fun. The part that rips your guts out is figuring out, and from both sides, like, because I, I make my own records, and I work on other people's records, and that's the only goal. It's like, what the fuck am I trying to say? And what's the and what's the truest way to say that? That's not bathed in self-loathing and cynicism and fear. Like, how do I just say it? And that that is just it. And so I feel like, you know, I feel like I get um, people are always like, oh, like you're the person who's like focused on like emotion and stuff like that. It's like it's just it's just more. What's the center of the circle? Mm. We could talk about the drum sound for nine hours, and we will. But. Yeah, Fuck I the mean, the drum sound. I've heard how many how many recordings have you heard in your life that sounds so sick and you never want to hear them again? Yeah, and I, and well, it's the saying the uncanny way of saying something is. I think you know, for me, that's always and you know what you're describing, where it's not it wouldn't sound like much separated from the song. The best lyrics are the ones you are almost are ashamed to have said. No, it's all. What personal. about that line? Because it doesn't sound like all that much, but it's you know. Um, I did a the first episode of the podcast is with the, Amelia from Sylvanesso who have that song Die Young which is you know to me like such a great example of that it took hearing that song for me to be like oh shit no one has quite said this this way which is just like I was I'm su- I'm a suicidal I have suicidal ideation but now I want to live because you're that awesome you know totally <laughs> and, and it's so specific to also knowing the artist and their other work and like you could, like if if Donald Trump said I'm sorry, that would be go, the best song ever. It would just it would it would. I mean, can you like doesn't your like just imagine that feeling? Or like if Steve Bannon said I might be wrong, <laughs> you know, like so it's so covering specific. Radiohead. Yeah, covering Steve. Radiohead, <laughs> the entire live album. Um, but it so it's it's specific. With that's the glory of putting out m- 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 lots of work is it's all a reaction to it. So. And that's what I love about that's that's one thing I love about well-known artists is that there's such a space to play with the things they say because it means so much. There's so much context. There's fucking gossip and other work and opinions. It's like songs live and breathe. They take a long time. So the more work you have out there, it's like just planting the garden grows. It's like more and more seeds. So it's like, God damn it! If Tom Waits made an album tomorrow and he had a lyric that was like, "I'm lost." Which, if someone else said that, like, if a new band was like, had a song called I'm Lost, I'd be like, okay, you're like, you gotta find a better way to pull me in. But if Tom Waits said that, I'd be like, God, this, I, I know all of his albums and all of his work. How is he lost at this point in his life? Yeah. Like, so it, it's, it's this crazy balance. And to that point, I think that makes it tough to be a new artist to be yourself and say something that will pull someone in. Like, look at Amy Winehouse, like, Rehab was such a brilliant song because it pulled you in whether you knew her or not, but it was so personal. Right. So it's just kind of that perfect moment. And then once we knew her, which she told us everything we need to know from that song as an intro, then we could just hear her and know her. 
Yeah, I mean, it's amazing the way it's just proved, too, that, that uh, people who sing other folk songs, you know, that interpreting words is... I'm thinking about Sinatra again. And <laughs> give me Sinatra. I had to give you Sinatra. Gift me Sinatra. Because oh, so the hurdle Literally. with Sinatra <laughs> is that, you know, or with Elvis for that matter, you know, is like if you like people who, if you tend to like artists who perform their own songs, who, you know, are singing things that they wrote, like then it's harder to fall in love with a, a Sinatra or a Britney for that matter, you know, because you but But there's still space for that where it's like, I mean, Elvis is a perfect example, like, or just just like when when Johnny Cash did hurt exactly like, that's what I was thinking of when you said Tom Waits I'm lost like what makes that work is the fact that Johnny Cash is such an amazing soulful interpreter of song that he can live in that melody and sing it in a way that's very real and new even though he didn't write it it's like he rewrote it and and there's those moments when things just like perfectly come together and your mind is blown. Yeah, like that. Where that's just a moment where it's like, this isn't better than the original. This isn't. This is just. I'm just so fucking thankful this exists. So what? What is the first time you can remember a song that came out of you where you where you were genuinely, kind of, you knew you had done something, like that. You know, where you felt like, okay, I don't know what this is, but I definitely this. I just said something that's very me. Um. Honestly, the first time I really feel like I got it right was when I when I wrote "I Want to Get Better" was the, the first Bleacher song, because I felt like I that that thing we're talking about about having to like grab people and tell your story. That was the first time that I felt like I had made the intro to myself that I wanted to. Mm. After over a decade of writing music, and, I, and I, I, there was a lot of things I had done that I was very proud of, but it was always like you had to know me so well to know why it was good. If mm. it, if it was good, you had yeah. to know me. Have to say, oh, I know Jack. I know what he's been through. Wow, he really made sense of that experience, that lyric. But but that's not, you know, you have to build up to that. And and I remember when uh, it was in the midst of Steel Train was over, and I was doing fun, and I wrote, I want to get better, and I was so obsessed with finding. I just was so obsessed with how do I write a song that just vomits it all out, says it all, but people can understand, and. I came to that where it's like that's sort of the story of my life at that point was I want to get better and then I thought well if I can just repeat that as like a mantra which I was very inspired by the mountain goats I'm going to make it through this year if it kills me mm-hmm. that that was a mantra I'm going to make it through this year if it kills me I'm going to make it through this year if it kills me you say it over and over that rings true to you if you watched your whole family get shot that rings true to you if you just feel fucking tired it's for everyone and in the verses he's yelling about alcoholism domestic abuse he's saying all this shit that has nothing to do with me but his openness makes me believe in the hook so I thought about that with the want to get better it's like if I can talk about my sister's death and anxiety this crazy acid trip I had that almost ruined my fucking life carrying all this weight and just yell all this stuff and then just I want to get better so that that was the first time where I thought to myself this is like this is the beginning I feel like I've I've taken the past 12 years of writing music and touring and finally figured out how to write a song. Um, and I've been proud of a lot of work since that, but that was kind of the first moment where I was like, okay, I really th- think this is worthy to give to people that are beyond, like, my friends. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I can, I can see that as a moment, like, just knowing you, yeah, there's a moment kind of... Uh... 
at things really coming into focus and and it kind of worked in a way in the sense that that was the first time because fun was there was three people writing music it was the first time that I wrote a song that really created a community of people and then that album people got into and you know it wasn't it didn't go t- 10 times platinum but it was that's when I started to like but you also if it's a mantra it's a mantra that you get to sing every night yeah to remind yourself that that's what you want you but, it, but it worked in the sense that what I've always been in search for was something that was perfectly near and dear to me with any, without any compromise but also spoke to people and 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 before I'd written that song and a lot of other points in my career I struggled with that where it was like I want people to understand this because I want to share it. That's why I do this. I, do, I want to share it, but it's I, but I can't fucking figure it out. Right. And and you and you touch on figuring out and the fans I had at that point, which was very small. You remember those days of very 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 small group of people in some states, maybe fifteen people. It was just people who somehow listened enough to get the whole story. Right. And I didn't invite them in the way that I learned how to do, and I think. When you learn how to invite people in, then you also have to be really careful to keep it super personal. It's this weird balance act. Right. But now you're, so now you're two albums into the Bleachers Project, and as you look forward toward the next group of songs for that, which I know you have touring in 2018, and it's not, we're not there yet, but, I mean, how do you keep your yourself open to not deciding too much what your music is? It's pretty easy to. Um, it's sort of like anxiety. It's like you can can make all these decisions that you want, but it it will exit your body how it, how it sees fit. Whether that be a panic attack, <laughs> your stomach hurting, migraines. You know. So it's like I I see myself as very powerless, which I think most songwriters and producers would agree with. Um, I come into this room, I live my life, and it it will it will reveal itself not to sound overly touchy-feely about it but just does I can try things I bought a 12-string guitar I really like the way that sounds right now I don't know if I'll make a whole album with a 12-string guitar the whole thing will be like completely synthetic it's just it, it, yeah. it finds itself the, the goal of any artist though is to not let it exit not let it leave your safe space until it does find itself mm. and that is where you have to keep labels and people at bay and be like it finds it's there when it's there right. that that you have to be honest with yourself about and that is a very real thing it's not ready until it's ready and you know when it's ready yeah. no one else can tell you yeah i mean definitely the machine of, try, of trying to put the thing through the machine and keep on a vocational schedule of like album tour album tour and you know it's just there's a lot you know the machinery of it or whatever I and the machinery is getting even crazier because now it's now Labels, which is cool, they love just throwing shit out there, throwing songs like here, just let it go. Let it, just they're in this trend of just like releasing tons of stuff, which for some artists is great, who want that outlet. But all, all that matters is that as an artist, you you only put things out. You might fucking record something in one hour and and, th- and be like, the world needs to hear this right now. And you're probably right, but just being honest about that feeling and not letting it be dictated by anyone else. Well, yeah, and just like the music industry is like always been a short attention span like it assumes that it it underestimates you know the industry itself underestimates music fans and their attention and their attention span and their 
yeah, willingness to wait and commitment to artists that they already love and the fact that they don't, until they love an artist, they, they're not going to remember any of the missteps from before, so don't worry about it. Like, you know, once someone finds you, it's all new and innocent and pure to them. So do you think that working with other artists as a songwriter and producer has changed the way you approach and assess your own songs and, and how you're feeling about them? Or do you ever sort of hear your producer voice in your head when it's just you working on your song um sometimes i don't i don't feel like the the specific nature of of working with other people has changed as much as as much as knowing those people and bearing witness to how open they can be that gives me courage but everything else i mean like i don't think you you know, I don't want to get like too good at one sound or one thing. Like, I don't, I don't think that's sort of interesting. Like, you, you have tools. Like, oh, if I mix this with that, but like, I don't want to like, because it's like I said before. Like, it's just about finding new things that make sense with the song or the album. Right. Um. So I, I really try to stay in like a, a very, uh, like emotional place with all of it. And not be like, you know, it'd be sick if we, you know, put these eight oh eights on on these strings. Like maybe, like we'll we'll, we'll get to that. Right. Um, so I, I get very changed and inspired by just writing and working with people, and it's almost like a reminder. It like refills my tank to like, okay, keep being open, keep being open, keep keep like chipping away at it. You just saw that person do it. You can do it too. There's a lot of like talking yourself through it, and they help me and I help them. It's just back and forth. Yeah, you realizing that everyone has the same insecurities when they're in the creative process, and that you're not insane for yeah. your own self doubt, and that yeah, you can push that. And it sucks because it's not past. it's not easy emotionally. It, it, you know, sometimes it really removes you from family and friends. But it's uh, so you have to, sometimes you, you. I think a lot of people I've worked with who are also friends have helped me continue to dig deep. Um. And that's what I hope I can help them with. Because the truth is there's a laundry list of people that can get amazing drum sounds or program cool beats and, or whatever it is. So I just... And I have so much respect for so many people doing that. So I, I don't... I don't intend to define myself in that space. I love doing that stuff too, but it's... I just think there's a bigger thing that's worth looking at. Word. I don't know. But who fucking knows? Right? <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thank you, Jack, so much for inviting me into your film. Thank you for Thanks. getting me out just in time for phone therapy. Yeah. I, I have nothing that I need to um, <laughs> unpack from this conversation. <laughs> you will not be included in my therapy session, okay. which is a gift. Sweet. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't tr trigger you in any way. All right, Jack's band Bleachers is on tour right now. I'm excited to see them the next couple of weekends at the Coachella Festival. And you can check all of their upcoming dates at bleachersmusic.com. Coming up next on Episode 7 of LSQ, it's that excerpt of a phone interview I mentioned with Zach De La Roga from Rage Against the Machine. The topic was a tour that Rage were going to be doing that summer with Beastie Boys. A co-headlining jaunt called the Rhyme and Reason Tour. Sounds amazing, right? Well, it never happened. They announced it, they put tickets on sale, and then a variety of logistical issues forced them to cancel it before it hit the road. 
Um, but it was awesome getting to talk to De La Roca, who'd been a hero of mine already for years at that point. And in the excerpt that you'll hear, Zach talks about how it was really important to both Rage Against the Machine and the guys from Beastie Boys that they create an environment at the shows that would be the antithesis of the environment at the recent Woodstock 99, a topic that came up in my conversation with Jack Antonoff as well. And you'll also hear us reference another festival tragedy from that same summer, the Roskilde Festival in Denmark, where a crush of audience toward the stage during Pearl Jam's set actually ended up killing nine people and injuring a couple dozen more. Let's get into it, and and where we start here is with Zach explaining how this idea for the tour came together in the first place. I think think primarily just kind of, at first, just out of admiration for one another and just the love of each other's music, I think, really brought it together. And I think that there are a few bands that kind of exist at this level um, who draw, who aren't, don't, you know, completely view their, view music as a, as a vehicle just for, uh, you know, a get-rich-quick scheme, you know. Right. And there's a lot of businessmen out there who right. call themselves musicians. And, you know, uh, looking at how the BCs have handled their business in the past and being particularly sensitive to, you know, people that come to shows is something that also attracted us, you know. Right. As well as just their, their dedication to you know, politicizing kids. So that, that, that pretty much sums up why, other than the fact that, you know, look, um, every time I've seen the Beastie Boys play, it's like, you know, Parliament's mothership landed at a minor threat concert. <laughs> and that's, that's always, like, really, really fucking exciting. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. But one of the, I mean, one of the objectives, like, kind of, of the tour that, you know, I sat down and met with, with Horowitz, Mm-hmm. Um, and Yauk about it like last month, and uh, you know one of the one of the like absolute priorities for this is to create a safe environment for women. Right. Um, anyone that played or heard about Woodstock was appalled by what happened there, and I think that you know per our discussions we're going to be taking like you know extra measures to ensure that women are respected at the shows. Um, and one of the one of the things that we were working on to do is to have a uh, a pre-show briefing before every single show for security guards that are working local venues to um, keep an eye out for guys that are uh, for knuckleheads that assume that because you know <laughs> there's a crowd around that they can take advantage of women and that's just not going to be something that we tolerate right. uh, from the onset in right. fact anyone that assumes that they're going to be able to behave that way at a concert can can also assume that they're going to get kicked out the second they try anything right so that's that was an absolute priority and so I think if anything kind of the foundation for the for the for the idea of the tour was was to for the tour to be the complete antithesis to Woodstock in every way shape and form you know yeah, you know women have enough you know to be concerned about in their own communities on campuses and in just just daily life you know living in fear of over half the population yeah. so so you're telling no me man you don't got to tell me at a uh, at a rage <laughs> Beastie Boys concert so you know and and plus i mean look I, you know, we, we played a, a, a concert with the B-Boys a long time ago uh, at Cal State Dominguez Hills for a benefit for Leonard Peltier. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, from that point on, after seeing their, their part of the, of the show, it was like we knew right then and there we wanted to eventually tour with them. Right. I mean, you know, they came out in UPS uniforms and Horowitz had a, had a, uh, a wig on. <laughs> and no one knew it was actually a wig. He showed up, got on stage, and... You know, ten seconds of shake your rump hit, 
and they blew everyone off the stage. And I went, <laughs> that's the group I want to be touring with in the, in the not-so-near future. Right, right. And the other, the other thing, too, is that, like, you know, one has to consider what just happened uh, in Europe uh, right. the jam performance and you know it was just such a horrible event and we just want to make sure that you know people can come you know um, taking as much information as they as they please um, and and at the same time you know not feel threatened you know in any way physically and that's that's something that we really really um, you know like I said is one of the core objectives of the tour is to make sure that that, that kind of thing doesn't happen yeah. what, what why do you think from your perspective why do you think that kind of thing happens so historically so often well you know what it, surprisingly surprisingly uh it doesn't happen that often um because you know you got to consider this just um you know a lot of people that kind of you know express themselves in a way that's like you know when it was once like a very like communal thing within the punk rock scene you know like the early 80s right you know people helped each other off the floor they didn't like stomp them when they were on the ground right and so there's this like really like kind of fraternity mentality that like runs through a lot of the the people there um you know i think that you know in this in the case like what happened out in europe i think that it's it's a combination of all of all those things it's it's weather it's you know conditions on the ground it's you know poor barricades and poor planning and right. all that stuff you know if 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 one of your goals is to ensure that that doesn't happen you can avoid it right you know so the thing that we're also like really like trying to pay attention to which is like kind of like the untold like damage in a lot of the concerts is the crowd surfing and diving right. because you know any any large scale show you go to you go backstage and it looks like a war zone right. I mean, it looks like you know <laughs> it looks like uh, you know it's a, like a, triage yeah I mean, it's <laughs> Like, you know, a, a small, like, infantry, like, <laughs> knuckleheads, like, attacks the crowd, and everyone gets, you know, everyone suffers for it. Right. So that's something we want to, we want to also, like, try to discourage. We've got to find new ways to dance in the millennium, you know? <laughs> Without fists. That's right. Fist-free dancing. Fists and elbows and... <laughs> You know, groping. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. It's terrible. It's, yeah. it's fucking mess. Yeah, well, thank you for your time. Oh, not a problem. I look forward to seeing the, the tour when it rolls yeah. through. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to get on it. And uh, were, were you going to come through New York? Oh, yeah. Cool. Totally. Because Donna going to be able to play these venues. Fucking great, man. Yeah, it really is cool. <laughs> it really is cool. That's about all I've got for you on Episode 7 of LSQ. Thanks again for listening. And major thanks to Jack Antonoff for taking the time for the interview and, as always, for his candor and enthusiasm. And thanks in retrospect to Zach De La Roga. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Uh, if you've got questions or feedback or whatever, you can hit me up on Twitter at JennyLSQ. If you need more than 280 characters to express yourself, reach me at LSQPod at gmail.com. For those of you who asked for stickers and buttons, those are going in the mail any day now. It's taking longer than I thought, I'm sorry, but you will get them, I promise. And the rest of you, if you'd like to get some LSQ merch, hit me up via LSQPod at gmail.com. Plus, if you love the show, don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating or a review, and most importantly, tell a friend. I'll talk to you next time when Allison Mosshart at The Kills is my guest. Have a good one. <laughs>